Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I know that everyone likes to complain about how tired they are lately, but I want to say this for the record. I almost fell asleep standing up last night. And that has not happened in the entire, how many months into this are we now? <laughs> One year anniversary of I think the firing it hit, of Comey. I think it hit, what I, maybe Happy that was it, something hit me like a ton of bricks last night. It wasn't just a sequence of sleepless nights. It was something about the accumulation of stress. I don't know. It's, it's finally, because you've been. Even I have a breaking point. Yeah, man, too many bylines. Aren't you tired? Well, yes, I am tired. I'm my arms are really tired because I flew home from Lebanon last night. So I'm like seven hours ahead of all the rest of you jokers. To me, it's already 10 o'clock at night. So you're jet lagged. Susan, how do you feel? I am. I'm not even tired. I'm weary. I'm just like exhausted of all of this and also have a small baby, although she sleeps through the night. I wish I could do that. Through no doing of my own. Go baby. How are you? I'm fine. I'm just fine. Rested, ready. Ben, have I mentioned lately how much I hate the fact that you're fine? I'm fine. (laughs) Just go buy a boat. Seriously. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the No Deal Goes Unpunished edition. I'm Wait, Shane isn't Harris. that no good deal goes unpunished? I'm not taking a position on whether it's a good deal or a bad deal. deal. (laughs) No deal. We could have called it the Deal or No Deal edition. Yeah. Deals off. The deals off edition. Who would no get deal. the deal or no deal reference? Is that the, I mean, that was like a brief little show. I never watched it. Wasn't Howie Mandel the host of that? Oh, God. Was it, let's make a memory. deal. No, let's make a deal was Monty Hall. The one yeah. thing we couldn't call it is the a deal's a deal edition. It's clearly not a deal. I feel like it's, it would be fair to say that in the current administration, no deal goes unpunished. It's like every deal is under review, right? Yeah, so, I think that's fair. That's <clears throat> all bets are off. Uh, I'm Shane Harris. Alert reporter. I'm awake for this now. No more whining about What are you tired. drinking, Shane? I am drinking a this peppery scotch that you have. <laughs> we'll see if you're awake we could get by you the time you such, finish like, that. like truck drivers pass around. Uh, like no Upper or something just to, <clears throat> to help you get over the uh... <laughs> <laughs> no dose. I, I, ha- I will say jet lag wise, I've discovered the power of melatonin for going to sleep when I'm jet lagged. But now I need something that's going to wake me up. When I'm tired, jelly. Right. Well, Scotch probably won't do it. <laughs> no. We are here with uh, Susan Hennessy, Tamar Kaufman, Wittes, and Ben Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi, hey. Shane. Um, this is this is a hell of a week. Uh, before we even talk about before this may be why I nearly passed out last night. Before we even talk about what we're going to talk about on the podcast, let's do a quick lightning round of what we're not going to be talking about that's going to take up the whole hour okay like one sentence reactions <laughs> okay michael avenatti has evidence that michael cohen may be taking money from russia and engaged in broader play-to-play schemes wow yeah. not great Surprising? guys not yeah. great okay we're not surprised uh three americans are freed from north korea yay, yay! good news okay they'll be here at 2 a.m they're going to be jet lagged uh rudy giuliani worse than a tv lawyer he kind of is lawyer a TV lawyer. <laughs> Can you call him a lawyer? <laughs> He's a one man band. My, how the, <clears throat> the mighty have fallen. <laughs> mighty? 
Oh, hey, there's been he an. He used end. to be America's mayor, and he was the great U.S. attorney who brought down the mob. I mean, he was a big deal once upon a time, and now he's a clown. All representing right. the president of the United States. A U.S. citizen is indicted in possibly the biggest uh, espionage case involving China that may have led to the entire American spy network in China being dismantled. We're not even talking about that. We're going to have to get back to that one. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming back to that because that case is a big deal. It's huge. It's a big deal. Really important. Yeah. Put a pin in that one. A private intelligence firm was hired to spy on Ben Rhodes and uh, Colin Call, new Obama administration, to try and discredit the Iran deal. What the actual fuck is yep. my reaction? <laughs> that happened. <laughs> uh, the ODNI is out with a new transparency report. Quick. <laughs> what does it say? Numbers. Lots of numbers. Lots of recording. Lots of intelligence going on. Eric Prince is cozying up to China. Like Mercenaries going to mercenate. Oh, uh, <laughs> Judge Ellis slams a prosecutor for the Mueller team. Um, are we worried about that? We're we not worried about that? I think... Uh, Judge is going to judge. <laughs> I think we got to just like wait till he actually rules because you can say all kinds of things in oral argument, but then uh, you have to actually rule on something. And I don't see I don't see where that line of argument is going anywhere that a judge can operationalize. All right, so we'll come back to that. Uh, <clears throat> he's a new director of the NSA. Susan, do you know him? I I have met him briefly. What's his name again? Uh, Nak- Admiral Nakasone. I guess he's General Nakasone now. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Welcome aboard. Welcome. We'll be talking about you eventually when we get to you. Uh, Turns out the president did pay Stormy Daniels and then lied about it. I feel like that is like month old news now. That probably happened like four days ago. (laughs) Who Um, hasn't paid off a porn star and then (laughs) forgotten about it? Um, A drone swarm attacked an FBI hostage rescue operation. Say what? That happened. Um, And Russian hackers apparently had the ability to deregister voters in 2016. It's fine. It's fine. It'll be fine. It's fine. Yeah. You know, we don't need voters in a democracy. We don't need 2016, that's for sure. <laughs> all right. So that's all we're not going to talk about on the podcast. But this week, what we are going to talk about, President Trump decides to undo the Iran deal. Gina Haspel faces a grilling in the Senate. And Devin Nunes, we need to talk about Devin. We really Still, need to talk about Devin. Again, again. Wants information that intelligence officials fear could jeopardize the source. What could go wrong? Um, all right, let's start with the Iran deal. President Trump has announced uh, that he's walking away from, canceling, backing out of. Um, Tammy, let me start with you. Like, just let's just set the table for what exactly is the president doing? What does it mean to back out of or undo a deal to which there are more than two parties, being the U.S. and the United States? There are actually multiple parties to this. And what can what are we doing, and what can we not do? Right. So this was the nuclear agreement um, between the PERM-5 members of the Security Council plus Germany on the one side and Iran on the other, uh, in which Iran agreed to a set of constraints on its domestic nuclear program uh, in exchange for relief from international sanctions. And uh, under uh, laws passed by Congress um, in the wake of the negotiation of this agreement, the president has to affirmatively uh waive those US the US sanctions that are part of that broader set of sanctions um every 6 months for some every 4 months for others and the most uh the the upcoming deadline is on May 12th and so essentially what he announced is he's not going to waive sanctions anymore he is going to reimpose in essence those sanctions and that does not withdraw the United States from this agreement what it does is put the United States in violation of the agreement. 
Um, and he's doing that very deliberately saying, we're no longer going to be a part of this. So what does that mean? The sanctions aren't only uh, directly against Iran, Iran's government, Iranian individuals, Iranian firms. Um, they are most of the mo more powerful U.S. sanctions are what we call secondary sanctions. In other words, they're sanctions against businesses and individuals from other countries, mainly European countries, that are doing business in or with Iran. Um, and so this really does put the squeeze on our European partners uh, who have been quick to seize the relief from sanctions and start doing business in Iran. It also harms some U.S. companies who are subject to direct sanction um, under these under these rules, like Boeing, for example, which was getting ready to sell a whole bunch of airplanes and airplane parts to a very degraded Iranian civilian airline. Um, and so... It's going to disrupt all of the economic relationships that Iran was getting uh, in return for agreeing to these restrictions and inspections of its nuclear activity. And, uh, and the Iranian reaction to Trump's announcement was to say, well, we're going to see for a little while and evaluate how others choose to behave. But if we don't see the benefits of the deal that were meant to come to us, then we're not necessarily going to keep up our end either. So it's worth then spending some time, a little bit of time on the justification for walking away from this or violating the terms of the agreement, uh, as President Trump spelled it out in a speech this week, it boils down to essentially, as I read it, um, Iran was lying about its nuclear weapons program, which I thought was the whole point that we entered into the JCPOA in the first place, and everybody understood that they were lying about their weapons program. We pretended to put that behind us um, uh, and was not honoring the spirit of the deal. But there's no real evidence, right, that's been put forward that Iran is in violation of this. And as far as we know from U.S. intelligence assessments and other U.S. officials, not only is there no indication Iran's violating the deal, but our latest assessment is that they abandoned their uh, pursuit of a nuclear weapon or at least sort of key components of it a number of years ago following the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So, I mean, Ben, let me kick this to you. I mean, <clears throat> it seems like the pretenses under which the president is trying to justify reneging on the deal are pretty paltry, if non-existent. And what this really more comes down to is just we don't we don't want a deal like this with Iran. We want some other kind of deal. So I think that's right. I think there's not a lot of reason to believe that Iran is not observing the terms of the deal. Uh, the argument, I rather, is that the deal sucked and therefore we shouldn't be observing the terms of the deal, not that the deal would be okay if Iran were observing it. Um, leave aside the merits of that argument for a minute. The thing that I've really never understood about withdrawing from the deal is what you mean to accomplish by doing it. So presumably withdrawing from the deal, it allows you to impose a bunch of new sanctions. But toward what end, right, is, it, is the idea that you don't believe that the nuclear deal should be severed from the other issues that Iran, that it's severed from, like uh, Iranian destabilizing activity in the region, the missile program, et cetera? Or is the idea that you're trying to get more onerous restrictive terms with respect to the nuclear activity itself. And the people who are opponents of the deal 
never really quite spell out exactly what the strategic objective of the withdrawal is. The other question that I've just never understood uh, and is if the United States withdraws from the deal and the other uh, members of the, the P5 stay in it uh, and Iran stays in it, what is the consequence of the U.S. withdrawing? Is the U.S. Is, does that just mean that the deal persists and the United States isn't a party to it anymore? I.e., we get all the benefits of the deal without without uh, being members of it, or does the deal somehow fall apart without the United States? And I, I've never really understood the answer to that question. Yeah. So, look, I'm not uh, a, a nuclear deal expert or an arms control expert or a sanctions expert, but reading everything I can from those who are, I don't think there's any one of them who believes that this agreement will hold too long without American participation because it's the American secondary sanctions that primarily constrained economic uh, relations between Iran and the rest of the world. And so the reimposition of those sanctions are is going to put an incredible chill on uh, business relationships with Iran and certainly government to government trade with Iran. And so uh, that's going to decline. It's probably going to decline pretty rapidly. And in fact, not only is that what uh, the Trump policy expects to happen, that's what Trump uh, administration officials are advocating. They are actively uh, arguing that European governments and European companies should withdraw their economic ties with the Iranians. And so um, it's very hard to see how Iran justifies remaining in an agreement that doesn't give it the economic benefits that it was promised. Now, I think the theory of the case here, if there is one, because I agree that Trump didn't articulate an alternative Iran policy, um, and it's not clear what even the alternative objective is. Um, but I think the theory of the case here is that by ratcheting up sanctions dramatically and swiftly, uh, the Trump administration can take advantage of a situation in which the Iranian economy is already in the dumps. Their, their currency is... Um, dropping precipitously in value. There is already domestic unrest over economic issues and government management of the of the national budget and the economy. There's already frustration over diversion of national national resources to the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the arm of the government that secures the regime, engages in terrorism, supports proxy forces, and destabilizes other countries. And so I think the argument here is that this is a way to weaken Iran and also to put tremendous pressure on this government that might then, might lead it to make further concessions. But even if it never agrees to make further concessions, it will constrain the Iranian government's ability to do bad things in general. Now, and what's wrong with the argument? Well, the, what's wrong with the argument is that Iran's regime, and particularly the IRGC, are extremely practiced at living with sanctions, 
the IRGC is really good at working um, black markets and back channels to finance themselves and do very, very well, not just survive, but do well under sanctions. They make money off sanctions. And so it's not necessarily going to constrain the activities of those components of the Iranian regime that most trouble the United States and its allies. Um, what it does do is give the Iranians a ready excuse to return to activity that at the time the nuclear deal was signed uh, had them in a position where they might have been able to build a nuclear weapon within a year or less. Uh, and so they're already threatening the renewal of enrichment activity. They could get back to that point fairly quickly. They could decide to kick out international inspectors. Um, and all of that practical effect is before you get to the broader consequences of this deal for American diplomacy uh, with our European partners, for American uh, fealty to other international agreements, for American negotiations with the North Koreans. So there's a set of secondary and tertiary effects to this decision whereby, you know, a carefully negotiated multilateral deal that was prepared not only by the Obama administration, but also by the Bush administration before it, uh, is thrown out the window for no other apparent reason than domestic politics. It was a campaign promise, and Trump wants to deliver on his promises. I mean, one of the things that I do think, you know, to, to your last point, you know, that I do think that sort of this illustrates is, you know, live by the presidency, die by the presidency. And and um, Jack Goldsmith has a good piece on Lawfare this morning about, you know, look, Obama uh, chose to rely on unilateral executive actions to accomplish lots and lots of things. And so that opens up uh, you know, it, it opens up a pathway to sort of dismantle this stuff because because they are just at the end of the day, they always were just political commitments, even though we might have framed them otherwise. And that meant that a later administration was going to be able to decide to, to walk away from them. And all of these consequences that we're seeing now, yes, it's part of, you know, uh, Trump's commitment to to with dismantling Obama's legacy sort of consequences be damned, um, you know, but but the original sin, I, I I think Jack is sort of suggesting the original sin goes back to sort of some of the Obama administration decisions about the, the tools they had available to them at the time. So I think that's a it's it's not an unreasonable point to make. And major American arms control treaties with the Soviet Union, for example, were treaties. They were ratified by the Senate. But this was not a bilateral process. This was a multilateral process. It was structured by a set of United Nations Security Council resolutions, which the U.S. as a permanent member of the Security Council has always treated as binding on us and we wield in our foreign policy. So it falls within a realm of multilateral action um, where presidents have not always used the, the treaty mechanism as a way of anchoring these things. So look, I, I think Jack's argument is fair with respect to a lot of Obama executive action. I'm not sure that this is actually the best case for that argument. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it is a good example of that argument. My The problem that I have on behalf of the Obama administration here is that there was no way to do this through a treaty because he was dealing, as I suppose Trump is with respect to Democrats in, in, Cong in Congress now, with an obstructionist uh, body in Congress that does not want to work with him. And, and you know, and so I, I think... You know, you have this problem where Obama can't go to Congress for a treaty because 
you know, bring the bring a treaty to Congress because Congress will not ratify anything he brings, much less by a two-thirds majority. But then the consequence of proceeding anyway is that you don't have a document that has any legal staying power. And so if you're succeeded by a mercurial nutcase next who doesn't believe in the document, uh, it's really, you know, not worth the paper it's printed on. Very last yes or no question. Does this make it easier or harder for the Trump administration to get a deal with North Korea on their weapons program? Harder. No. Really? No, I was just saying yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I can't... You, you did say it was yes Sorry, or no. Sorry, binary question. Yes. <laughs> harder, harder. Oh, harder. Okay. Why yeah. on earth would anybody sign a deal with the United States today? Good question. All right. Um, Gina Haspel would like to sign a deal with the United States to be your next CIA director. <laughs> nice segue. She Shane's been up in the segue game. She appreciates it. Um, Gina Haspel testified uh, today, uh, this morning, actually. In fact, it just wrapped up uh, about two hours ago as we're taping. Uh, I had the pleasure of watching all of it. Um, I have to say at the top, I think she did pretty darn well. I don't um, understand why they didn't question her while they were playing really loud music and not letting her <laughs> sleep or or maybe just make the hearing go on for, you know, two or three days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too <flavor>. soon, Tammy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Gina Haspel chained from the ceiling <laughs> answered questions. It probably me. felt I'll like I'll tell that. you anything you want. Just let me out. Just confirm me. Isn't that kind of what she did anyway? Well, you know, most of the questions did focus on that chapter. <laughs> Of her 33-year career. We're going to get some angry emails for this. Yeah, well. <laughs> Well-deserved. <laughs> hey, I didn't, I didn't start this. Um, look, I, I thought actually – I'll just give my, my quick take on it, and then I actually want to ask, ask Ben a question about this. But um, my, my, I was surprised, that, frankly, that Democrats were not harder on her about a subject that I thought um, Kamala Harris, Senator Harris from California, actually kind of keyed in on the most, which was – Okay, we understand that you say you're going to be guided by your moral compass, as Haspel put it. We understand that you are saying under no circumstances would I ever uh, reauthorize or authorize an interrogation program ever again at CIA. She actually made a fairly uh, strong case as to, you know, I thought why the CIA never should have been doing it to begin with. I mean, essentially saying that this is not what we do. Um, but we asked the question, you know, did you think it was moral at the time? Did you think it was right at the time? Where was your compass pointing at the time? She really resisted that uh, line of questioning uh, and perhaps not surprisingly, but um, it was candid and forthright in some places and a little bit dodgy in others. Um, I, but I, again, I thought it was actually kind of remarkable in some ways that people didn't kind of dig in more on that. And I thought she actually uh, performed fairly well. Ben, you actually just put a piece up on Lawfare uh, saying, you know, arguing like why you think she should be uh, uh, the new director. And I just want to kind of briefly encapsulate that because I think it's actually an interesting point of discussion. So actually this uh, conviction on my part distilled in the course of a uh, lengthy conversation with Shane yesterday on the Lawfare podcast. And it was uh, really the thing you said that really uh, crystallized this in my mind was when we were talking about uh, how her nomination is viewed within the CIA. And you said, look, a lot of people in the CIA 
regard her as somebody who will act as a layer of insulation between the agency professionals and the White House. And in this period of craziness, she's going to be the one that protects our ability to do our job. And so I thought, okay, let's say you believe that it would be really important to draw a line and have a, a sort of accountability for what happened 15 years ago in in the facility that she operated in Thailand and you know and for uh whatever role she played in the destruction of 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 the Abu Zubaydah tapes um is sending that message more important than having between another intelligence component and the president uh, a layer of insulation to absorb the craziness to let um, let people who are professionals in the intelligence space do their jobs uh, or is it more important right now to have intelligence professionals who will play that role uh, than it is to send a message of accountability about the RDI program 15 years ago that is, uh, to me, I side on the dealing with the what Obama called the fierce urgency of now uh, over over what happened some time ago. Now, reinforcing that for me is the idea that I have no confidence that if Gina Haspel's nomination were voted down that the president would nominate somebody else who would play that role without the baggage she has on the RDI stuff. It's certainly possible. Some of the, some of the names that are floated are, are uh, attractive in that regard. But some of the names that are floated are really not. And by the way, they're enthusiastic in a future-looking sense about programs like the RDI program, not merely people who participated them in them once upon a time. And so what I would say is, look, under other circumstances, I would think this would be a, 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 maybe a reasonable message for the Senate to send. Uh, under these circumstances, I'm much more concerned about the preservation of, uh, uh, of professionalism in an intelligence agency than I am about the messaging associated with interrogations in 2002 and 2003. Yes, yeah, so Jane, I had a, a sort of a similar reaction to you. I, I think that sort of all said and done, she probably gets confirmed based on that performance. I, I think that wasn't something that was necessarily clear. That's sort of unusual in confirmation hearings that there actually appears to be an open question. You know, we don't we don't know. They haven't voted yet, but but that would be my guess. You know, I, I was I thought she was really good on the forward looking stuff. She was clear and unequivocal, checked all the boxes that sort of speak to the concern that Ben just raised about being willing to be that insulating layer. I, I thought she was really weak on uh, on sort of the backward looking stuff and you could t you could see how much she wanted to sort of uh uh, ign not acknowledge explicitly that there was an issue, right? I, I believe we should we should meet this high moral, higher moral standard moving forward, that kind of stuff. And the one thing that sort of came to my mind is, you know, would the world end if Gina Haspel just said, you know what, it was wrong. 
And uh, we did what we did with the information we had at the time. Um, you know, I, I think we made that decision in good faith. I, I think we made it lawfully, you know, but but no, if I could go back knowing everything, I, I wouldn't have done it or I think it was wrong or, or I think it was immoral in hindsight. There's sort of this notion of intelligence officials that the, the world will crumble or morale will crumble if you acknowledge a, a mistake as profound as that. And so I was, I was a little bit struck by how much she seemed to just uh, to, to not want to sort of go there. Um, you know, the the final piece that I was I really thought was uh, was alarming was you know look they spent the entire hearing it was only two hours really focused on this question of torture. There was almost no discussion about her future policy goals for the CIA. There was no discussion about. North Korea. There was no discussion about Iran. There was none. There was no sort of hearing or inquiry into what one would think is the most important questions here. Kind of, if you are, if you become the director, what are you going to do? And so, you know, it's a, it's a reflection of the moment. It's a reflection of the anxieties. I, I'm not saying that's more important, but but the fact that we're gonna we're gonna confirm or not confirm a CIA director without even asking those questions that I do think is remarkable. Before we go to Tammy, I just want to interject one question on, I think your first question, which you raised, and maybe Tammy, you'll want to respond to this. Why couldn't she go back and say it was wrong and it was immoral? What if the answer to, to, to that is because she'd be lying? Because I mean, she, you're saying she doesn't think it's wrong. Anymore. Right. I mean, I have to say in watching, in watching her and in talking to a lot of her former colleagues and friends uh, for this profile that I did of her that ran this week, I mean, maybe it's a little bit more nuanced than I'm about to state it, but <clears throat> I think if you really were talking to Gina Haspel honestly, she would say, um, I do think it was the right thing to do at the time. It wasn't pleasant. I didn't relish it. It was authorized. We were ordered to do it. We had few options, and we got valuable information because of it. Yeah, so I, I very much agree with that. I think, the broadly speaking, the agency folks are divided into – three categories. Uh, this is a loose generalization. But the one group opposed the program at the time and thought, you know, had moral anxieties about it, didn't approve of it, and um, and still oppose it. One group was enthusiastic about it at the time. The most prominent of these is Jose Rodriguez, uh, who, of course, ordered the destruction of the tapes. And was Haspel's uh, boss. When and was happened. Haspel's boss. Um, uh, but he, you know, this group of people uh, was enthusiastic about the program at the time, believed in the program at the time, uh, and defends it to this day. And then there is a third group that I think is the sort of, it's a, I don't know if it's a majority, it's a plural, maybe a plurality position, but it's a common position that says this was a very particular circumstance. Uh, it was something that probably we needed to do in that moment, and we would very much oppose. No, those circumstances do not exist today, and under no circumstances that we can imagine would we want to would we want to do it in circumstances other than the circumstances in which we did it? And that is the, for example, John Rizzo is a prominent proponent of that position. Uh, and when I, when I see Gina Haspel like refusing to say it was wrong, I think it's because she's in, but saying there are no circumstances in which I would want to do it. I would agree to do it now. I agree with Shane. I think that's what she's saying. She's saying, I don't think in the circumstances that we did it, it was wrong. And I think underlying that 
is this belief that it was really productive and it saved a lot of lives. Now, that's a contested point, um, but I think they really do believe that. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. And of course, whether it was really useful and whether it really did save a lot of lives is something that the, that the American public doesn't get to debate because we don't know and we never will. And I think that's why this issue is going to be an ongoing issue. It is not going away. What I think is really interesting here is that Senate Democrats faced a choice between short-term gain and long-term gain uh, politically. And they ultimately chose probably largely because, as you noted, Ben, the alternatives might be even worse, um, to probe the issue with Haspel, get her on record saying she she will oppose this, um, and take that gain and put it in their pockets, rather than uh, fighting the nomination tooth and nail so that they can use the torture issue as a as a club to beat the Trump administration over the head all the way through the midterms, which was their other choice. And, you know, we talked about the nomination on the show when it was first announced. And I told you, I thought Democrats were going to gin themselves up into a frenzy over this. They, the Senate Democrats made a different choice. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the base feels about that. Do they feel like, you know, their members of Congress are once again not fighting hard enough for the values that they defend and not willing to go to the wall and not willing to play the game the way the Republicans play the game against them? And we should know just before we move on to the next topic, uh, just as we've been talking, Democratic Senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, has said he will vote to confirm Gina Haspel. So the Republicans need, presuming they vote as a block and lose Rand Paul and John McCain, they've got to bring two over, I guess. Yep. So uh, she, she may be on her way. Um, speaking of people in Congress, there's, <laughs> really right. no, there's really no easy segue to this. We no, need to Devin. talk about Devin. He's Devin. a one of a kind guy. <laughs> You've done it again. Oh, Devin. Devin. <laughs> you rascal. Actually, Devin. Scamp Devin Nunes. <laughs> I mean, all jokes aside, like he's really outdone himself right. this time. Uh-huh. Let me let me let me explain what he did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, some colleagues of mine at the Post and I last night broke that uh, last Wednesday, uh, intelligence and FBI senior officials rushed over to the White House to try and persuade the administration not to support a subpoena that Devin Nunes had issued. Uh, asking for FBI documents. And the reason that these officials didn't want the information to be handed over to Devin Nunes was they believed it would expose uh, the identity of a source. Uh, This source has provided information, intelligence to the FBI and the CIA, and some of this information from the source has also made its way into the Russian interference and the Mueller probe. Uh, So the thrust of this being that administration officials essentially said Devin Nunes is about to expose the identity of a human source, and in a letter to Nunes, the Justice Department said, what you're doing risks uh, U.S. lives. And sources and methods. Uh, so that is about as strong as you get in the pushback and the warning category. Uh, but Ben, you said he's outdone himself this time. Well, so look, I, you know, the intelligence community and, uh, you know, I, I, I do think they deserve some criticism on this as a general matter. They use the term sources and methods as though it's one word. Um, and whenever they don't want to release information, they say, we can't talk about that because it would release sources and methods, as though it's all one word. And uh, what that sometimes obscures 
is that sources are actual people. And sometimes when, when you say this endangers sources and methods, what you mean is that there is a source for certain critical information. And if you talk about that information, if you don't, if you're not extremely careful, you will reveal who that person is and you will get that person hurt or killed or arrested. And this is uh, one of the, the core uh, commitments of faith between the intelligence oversight system on the Hill and the intelligence community is that oversight will be conducted in a fashion that protects uh, those equities on the part of the intelligence community, which are, by the way, the uh, most sacred commitments that that community gives to the people who give it information. And so what this story, which, you know, you guys were being journalists and too, therefore, uh, too clinical and delicate to say this out loud, but I'm, I'm not. What, what that story was, was the Justice Department going to the White House and saying, you know, the intelligence oversight system is going to do to our, our sources what Edward Snowden and, you know, Julian Assange and Glenn Greenwald uh, <clears throat> were trying, you know, were not necessarily successful to do, which is to outsource and get them killed. And um, the fact that, you know, the fact that that is that accusation is being made against the House Intelligence Committee, you know, should be the only thing that anybody's talking about today. Well, and I, I have to note that Paul Ryan uh, made clear that he thinks that the administration should comply. Once again, backing up Devin Nunes in, you know, when Nunes is really clearly upping the ante here in an effort to paint the intelligence community as uncooperative and use that to discredit the work that it's doing in support of the Mueller investigation. And Ryan's so, a gang of eight member just like Nunes. Yeah, so look, I'm, I'm hardly surprised that um, that Paul Ryan is yet again not a profile in courage. I, I do think this final point that, that Ben is making is so incredibly important. The Department of Justice and the U.S. intelligence community are afraid to give information to the chairman of the HIPSI because they think that information is going to fall into the wrong hands. The oversight mechanism, the trust relationship that is necessary for this system to function is broken full stop. And I usually don't say things like this, but Devin Nunes should be removed from his position. And for Paul Ryan to not do that is an abdication of his obligation uh, as speaker, obligation as a member of Congress to be a responsible steward of these powers and authorities. I think this is an unbelievably disturbing story, and it's not getting enough attention, and, and it really should, and that's sort of the core of it. it th there's a lot packed within it, though, about why the, the nature of this sort of dysfunction and how it's playing out, and that is that Nunez's team appears to be attempting to give the president uh, a pretext for firing Rod Rosen. Seen, uh, firing Robert Mueller, potentially even firing Jeff Sessions. And the way that that has uh, evolved is essentially they ask for sets of documents, which they know that the Justice Department is not going to provide them. And then whenever the Justice Department says, no, we won't provide you those documents, they scream and shout and say, These, this is grounds for impeachment. 
and are sort of waving at as Trump trying to get his attention. Um, you know, and so I think that's uh, that is we, that is what I get. That is yet again the cycle that we're seeing play out right now. Um, you know, I, I still view that as sort of that alone is sort of the, the political calculation is disturbing. I, I view that as separate and apart, and and uh, and I still think we should be clear about the fact that that what they're they're also afraid of is that he's going to be passing information to the Trump team himself. And and one piece of the story that I I worried about being included, and, and I won't ask Shane to, to say anything on this, but the piece that sort of got my my heart pounding a little bit was the part that it noted that this was a person who was providing information to Robert Mueller. And I thought, huh, I wonder if Trump reading this and learning that this particular source has something to do with this investigation is going to change whether or not he thinks that source's identity should be protected. And the fact that we even have to go through that mental state, that that sort of seed of doubt is even in my mind, that that is just incredibly disturbing to me. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying. And it just to, 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 to maybe just amplify that one notch, you know, I can say this because we reported it in the story. There were people who said they weren't sure that Trump would not change his mind about this later. So I don't think by any means we can say that it is, it's done, Devin Nunes will go no farther on this. Uh, and obviously there's been a history of increasingly sort of aggressive and to many people's minds, we talk this a lot on the podcast, disturbing revelations. Um, this one, though, this kind of shot off into a new a new level for the people who we spoke to who were very much opposed to this. And I did think it was striking that people thought that this could still go the other way. Yeah, well, and let's remember that Nunez's very first appearance in the panoply of uh, Russia investigation drama was, you know, very shortly after the inauguration when he, you know, covertly coordinated with the White House to leak information that he was sworn to protect in his role as Intelligence Committee chair. And, and so it's... It, you know, you you sort of suggested, Susan, that he's waving this around trying to get Trump's attention. We don't know. This may be fully coordinated with the political staff at the White House because Nunes has already demonstrated not just a willingness, but an eagerness to be a bagman for the political effort to discredit the Russia investigation. I also think Susan made another point that I think is really worth dwelling on. You know, the um, the information that that Congress is demanding from the intelligence community and from the Justice Department, FBI in particular, is information that historically presidents have been extremely assiduous in protecting. This is the, you know, the sort of stuff that simply never gets turned over. And um, Trump has consistently and publicly sided with the congressional side against his own administration. And he has done that because the congressional side is seeking to discredit the Russia investigation. In other words, he has put, uh, and I don't think there's a polite way to say this, but I don't think this is a a neutral way to say that. He has put a corrupt personal purpose ahead of the interests of his branch of government that is faced with the choice of protecting really sensitive executive branch information or helping Congress discredit an investigation of him. He chooses on a fairly consistent basis the latter. And so the question is, what if the... uh, what if uh, 
proceeding according to the way that he has proceeded on this, that is helping Congress discredit the investigation of him using sensitive investigative information from the executive branch, requires that a source get killed. Do we have confidence that the president would stop short of that? I think asking that question sort of answers it. And I, I think he, I do not have confidence that protecting a source is a good enough reason for him to say, okay, we gotta, I, I gotta protect executive branch information. And that's a, that's a really upsetting thing. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Tell me you have something happy for us, Susan. I do. I actually have two object lessons, um, both of which are, are happy, happy-ish, happy enough. Um, so my first object lesson is a conference that is going to be held at CSIS uh, next Friday, uh, May 18th, on the future of force. Um, and as I was perusing this really interesting conference and looking at all um, really the, the remarkable speakers, I noticed something, um, that they are all women. This entire conference from 8.30 to 6.30 p.m. Uh, on really critical national security and, and uh, military questions is all has all female speakers. They Whoa. are all. I think there's one male notch. moderator. Oh, that's actually. good. They've been yeah, listening that's to nice Tammy Willis. Now, actually, this is a brainstorm of two amazing MIT graduate students who went to CSIS and asked to put this together. And kudos to them, and kudos to CSIS. Here, here. Um, I so I, I would commend it to everybody and uh, uh, excellent work for, for CSIS. And I don't want to hear from any other conference organizers about how they just couldn't find a woman. Shucks. Yeah, I just uh, don't know any women in national Exactly. Security. Are there Are any there even? Any? Yeah, maybe one or two. One or two. Almost like somebody should put together a project where you identify them for mm -hmm. people who need. <laughs> to be continued, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Um, so my other object lesson is uh, is an article in the New Yorker. Um, uh, it's called "The Spy Who Came Home." It's actually the cover story right now. Um, it is a completely incredible story about Patrick Skinner, who uh, who left the CIA uh, last year, the year before last, um, to become a beat cop in his hometown of Savannah, Georgia. Um, it's just a really remarkable piece, both about sort of his insights, uh, you know, sort of the insights of that he learned abroad and, and applying them to to some of the problems at home. Um, it, it's a it's a remarkable sort of account of um, uh, the different manifestations of, of public service and sort of commitment to your community and sort of the security begins at home idea. It's really beautifully rendered. Um, uh, ben Taub uh, wrote it, you know, who, who uh, often does uh, really great work in this space. Um, so I, I would really uh, strongly suggest it to everyone. It, it's, a, it's a great read and um, might even leave you feeling a little bit optimistic about uh, the future of our country. Oh, thank Aww. you. Let's just stop there before Ben... With his object. No, my object lesson is similarly inspiring. That's true. Um, so I usually don't do people as object lessons um, because uh, it risks objectifying people. But uh, a, a couple weeks ago, I was approached uh, through uh, the Brookings press office by um, a high school student in uh, New Jersey named Anna Salvatore. And uh, Anna uh, runs a blog called High School SCOTUS, which is uh, a kind of blog modeled on SCOTUS blog, um, the, the great Supreme Court website, only written by a high school student. As the and, name suggests. As the name suggests. And 
Uh, Anna's Twitter feed, uh, which is, by the way, at High School SCOTUS, uh, and which you should all follow, describes it as writing about student-related Supreme Court cases, interesting legal news, interviewing SCOTUS experts, high schooler on the side. Uh, and she asked me to sit for an interview uh, for her website, which I readily agreed to do. And I have to say, I have never been so impressed by an interviewer. She was astonishingly well-prepared, uh, had done uh, remarkable research. She asked me about an interview I had given in 2002 or 2003. Wow. Um, she's uh, asked me questions that uh, very, like nobody asks um, and were genuinely, uh, I found myself as I was answering them, uh, quite surprised by how revealing I was being in response to these questions. And then she uh, typed it all up and uh, stuck it up on, on high school SCOTUS blog. Um, and um, I, so my object lesson is my interview with uh, Anna Salvatore, which uh, you can find if you look at high school SCOTUS blog uh, and uh um, and I really recommend that you follow her on Twitter because I think this is a, uh, a, a very unusual, uh, kid with a very interesting future. Oh, Sounds like Anna. she needs a podcast. Yeah. High school. SCOTUS podcast. SCOTUS podcast. I mean, she sounds like she's a good interviewer. Yeah. Just stick her in she's front coming of for you, Shane. Yeah, right. <laughs> Watch out, Anna. I've seen mean girls. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. And we're still awake. I did not now. sleep. For Getting now. punchier all the time, oh, but we're still awake. You should have seen me yesterday. It was crazy. <laughs> uh, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page. You sure can. You can find it. Yeah, you, you can, can go still look for find it. it. <laughs> you can find it somewhere out there. And this week, Law, uh, Rational Security <clears throat> is brought to you by Boeing with all the money <laughs> that $3 they, billion dollars that's worth. from their canceled Iranian contracts. They had to spend it somewhere. It was like a flex savings account. It was use it or lose I it. I don't think that's how the canceled contract works. I'm not an economist, but uh, well, we're not spending I don't the... think they saved the money. That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever, and you find us on Facebook, obviously, too. And whenever you download the podcast from your favorite podcasting service, please Please do leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. We appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Quinta Jurassic, pulling audio duties again. Back the OG again. audio engineer. It's Just awesome having her back in the jungle studio. Keeping the skills sharp. Right? <laughs> awesome. Uh, the show is produced and edited by Jem Patia Howell. Music this week by Devin Nunes and the extremely extra bad executive enabled exposures. Whoa. Yeah. 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 Even his band sucks. <laughs> <laughs> How about just Devin I'll and the that. Enablers? Yeah. What's that? Devin and the Enablers. Devin and the Enablers, yeah. yeah. They that's wear leather another, jackets. That's on the second go around. They got rid of the drummer and the keyboardist, and they kind of like went more <laughs> like 90s grunge yeah. homage. <laughs> they just became the Enablers. <laughs> first band, f f first album name, Source Death. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually Sophia Yan's uh, band name on the side. 
Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> On behalf of my good friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis, and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>